Hey, well, good morning. Grab a Bible. There should be one in the seats around you. Turn to Acts chapter 16. And uh, we have been in a series of messages that we've been calling Gospel Gone Viral. And uh, we've been in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts really details how the good news of Jesus spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And just to kind of give you a little bit of perspective about this and how amazing uh, this work of God was in the early church, um, the, the growth of Christianity was so explosive that we know that by the 4th century AD, over half of the Roman Empire identified as Christian. By the 4th century, okay, through, through 400 years, uh, half of the Roman Empire identified as Christian, which is absolutely amazing. Now, added to that is the fact that God started the movement through fewer people that are in this room right now, significantly fewer than this room right now. Probably about 120 people is what he started it with. And what's even more amazing about that is the fact that none of those people had political power, None of those people had really any really real money to speak of. And they certainly didn't have celebrity status. But they did have a conviction that only Jesus saves. And they had the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. And I think the key to the gospel going viral in the book of Acts is the fact that just ordinary average Christians, people just like you and me, saw themselves principally as carriers of the gospel. That's how they saw themselves. Just ordinary people, not, not the apostles, not, you know, the ordained disciples going out. The normal people saw themselves as carrying, carriers of the gospel. In fact, there's a church historian named Stephen Neal. And one of the things that he notes about the growth of the early church is this. He says, he says nothing is more notable than the anonymity of the spread of the early Christian movement. In other words, the early church exploded, but we really don't know the names behind that as much. It's just an anonymous kind of movement. And the, and the illustration he gives for this is the fact that, you know, by the second, second century AD, there were three leading churches in the Roman Empire. And the first one was, you know, the church at Antioch. The second was the church in Alexandria, and then the third one was the church in Rome, and the, the Roman church came a little bit later. But these three churches were big churches, and they were church planting centers, if you will. Here's the interesting thing about it. We have no idea who planted and started those churches. We have no idea. The only thing that we have in Acts chapter 11 is a, a group of people went to go share Jesus, and Luke tells us, and the Lord was with them all as they shared Jesus. That's how the church in Antioch got started. Like, well, thanks, Luke. We'd love a little bit more about that, but you're not going to give it to us, you know. And then, and then Acts 28, Paul goes to Rome, and, and Luke tells us there that he met with the brothers. The brothers received him. And so what that tells us is there's a small group of Christians who are already building a church there. But we have no idea who they were. No idea. But they received them. And I think what it says is this, is that when ordinary people like you and me just share the gospel, it just changes the world. It turns the world upside down. It turned the Roman Empire upside down. Ordinary people, people that have problems and stresses and pressures, just like you and I have today. When ordinary people share Jesus, unbelievers become believers. People far from God come near to God. That's 
what I think we see in the book of Acts. Now, you guys, fast forward to today in the United States, and, and let me just kind of set it up this way. I, I mean, I think, it's, you know, I think it's reasonable that all of us are, you know, at least marginally concerned about kind of the moral slide happening in the United States that we've seen really over the last 10 or 20 years. I think we're, I think we're concerned about that. Um, you know, uh, I, I think we look at that and, you know, they're just... There are just some things like the violence in our society, the breakdown of our family, a dozen other things. I think you and I notice what's going on in the United States. And I think the thing that we have to understand is, you know, principally where our mind goes is that that's a political problem. It's really not. It's really a spiritual problem. And and I think what we're seeing is, is we're seeing a slide in the United States very similar to what happened in Europe 50 to 100 years ago. So we're kind of following on their track. But the reason why is because Christians are not sharing the gospel. That's why. And it's almost like in the United States, we basically, as Christians, we've said, you know, we're just going to be silent and we're going to play defense. We're not going to go on offense. We're just going to be really quiet. And I think that's part of what the culture wars have done is they've silenced Christians. We just kind of said, we're just going to sit this one out. You guys just have at it. And then, and then our country's just kind of going off into the ditch. Now, let me just kind of illustrate it this way. You know, football season is just around the corner. Praise be to God. There you go. Um, yeah, and so, you know, you guys know Andrew Luck's been rehabbing his shoulder, and for two years he's been throwing a tennis ball or whatever. But, um, but the word is that he's throwing a football, and he's actually working out. So, so we're hopeful and prayerful for that. Um, but what if, and they're, they're saying that he's going to be ready by the first game. But what if he's not again? You know, and what if Jim Ursay tweets, we've decided, the Colts organization, if Andrew Luck's not ready this year, we're just going to play defense. We're not, every time we get the ball, we're just going to punt it right back to the other team. We're not going to run an offensive play. We're not going to try to score on offense. What would you say to that? You would be like, are you guys crazy? That's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. And if you're a season ticket holder, you would flush those things down the toilet in a minute. Now, here's the thing, but that's almost like what, what the church in the United States has said. We're just going to kind of play defense. We're not going to go on offense. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to share the gospel. We're not going to be salt and light. And I think we're seeing the impact of that in our, in our nation today. Now, what we've said as, as a church here is we are going on offense. And we're not going to be offensive, but we are going to go on offense. And that's why I'm challenging our entire church to join us in Invite Your One on August 5th. Bring somebody who's far from God, who doesn't have a church home, invite them to church. Let's go on offense. And let's love people. Because if we really love God and we love people, we will share with them. I mean, it's just that simple. And so, and so what you do is you just kind of say, hey, our church is having this very special day. And we're all inviting a friend to church. Would you be my friend that comes with me to church on that day? Would you be my one? I'll even meet you at the front door. And if you're available, we'll go out to lunch together. You guys, eight out of nine people that are asked that would say yes. And so, and so on your seat today, hopefully, 
you see a little piece of paper that looks like this. We want you to take this and write the name of your one down. And we want you to take and put this card anywhere that will remind you to pray for them. Because we are praying for God to do a big thing on August 5th. And we're praying for God to do a big thing after August 5th. And so we really want you to, to join with us. And it's, it's really easy. But we get so, you know, busy. We get so caught up in things that are going on. We just think, oh, I'll just do that later. And later never comes. And, um, you know, the, really the thing, the, the motive behind this is, is really simple. I, I, you know, as I think about my family members that don't know Christ, as I think about my neighbors and my friends that don't know Christ, I just don't want them to step into eternity without at least hearing the good news of Jesus. That's it. That's all. I mean, that's, what's mo- that's the motive behind this. And I don't think we realize as Christians and as a congregation how urgent it is for us to be living on mission every day. And so I want to just share a story with you. It's a video that uh, Julia Dahl, uh, it's a video of her story sharing about the one that she invited a couple of years ago. And it's an amazing story. So watch the screen behind me. I met Kara in middle school in eighth grade. We met because we both baked cupcakes for the teachers um, and it became a rivalry where we wanted to beat the other one out and in presentation and taste um, and it became such a big deal that we like didn't like each other because of it and it was kind of funny when I look back now it's kind of ridiculous but really it was just a matter of I didn't want to admit to myself that she was a better baker than me. My freshman year the youth group introduced a sermon series called Who's the One in Front of You and I was really excited it was basically invite someone to church and so I started praying and I really didn't feel like I knew who that person was and I was a little frustrated because I really wanted to because everyone was going up and writing the name on the chalkboard wall and I couldn't because I didn't have anyone on my heart and so I went home and I continued to pray and I still felt like I didn't really know and then the next day um, I was assigned to sit right next to Kara and my first thought was oh great this is gonna be awesome. Um, But then God was like, she's the one. And I freaked out and I was like, no, anyone but her, God, not her. And he was very persistent in my week of prayer. And so I was like, okay, I I guess I will will start and and talk to her. I was really nervous, but eventually I did see like a different side of her than I had seen before. And so I wasn't as nervous. Um, in the small talk aspect, but I was pretty nervous when I was supposed to ask her to come to Bible study. And then when I did ask her, she looked me dead in the eye and said no. And so after that, I was pretty discouraged, but um, God just kind of told me that I needed to keep fighting for her. And so that's when I decided that I was going to just keep asking her as long as it took. And so for literally four months, I asked her every single class period um, that we had history if she would go to Bible study with me until she finally said yes. She came after I asked her, like the last time she said, if 
I go one time, will you shut up? And I said, yes. So she came, and it was really cool seeing how um, emotional she got because she said, she pulled me aside at Lifehouse and said, for the first time in her life, she felt like she belonged somewhere. And it was really cool to see, and that's, um, it kind of made it all worth it at that point. And then I told her that she would, she should come back, and she was like, absolutely, I'm totally coming back. She told me the next day that she wanted me to come meet with her, and so we met at the public library, and she told me her entire life story of struggles that I had no idea that she was struggling with, and we finished that time where I led her in a prayer to accept Christ. It was a little over a year of attending youth group together and just becoming really close friends that she made the decision that she wanted to publicly um, commit her life to Christ through baptism. And so she asked her mom and I to baptize her at Stones Crossing um, a little over a year um, after we initially had that Lifehouse moment together. And so it was really cool to do that. It was probably one of the coolest moments for me was to see how God had orchestrated all of that up until that point. So our junior year, Kara fell down the stairs at school and shattered her foot, which led to multiple surgeries and a really long time just in recovery in that process. And she was in a wheelchair for a while, and then she had the little scooter thing, and um, which she enjoyed. And it was kind of funny to see just well, not funny, but really awesome to see that she still had like the Holy Spirit working through her and doing kingdom work and still having a really positive attitude even through that really difficult process. Towards the end of her recovery, she thought she was having an asthma attack. When she went to the hospital, she found out it was a blood clot in her lung. So she texted our Lifehouse Bible study and told us that she was really scared. She was at a high risk for sudden death syndrome and she just wanted some prayers. And so we all started praying pretty persistently. And then the next morning I found out at school that she had passed away in surgery. When I think back on the moment when God laid her on my heart, um, I just think of I would have never done that on my own. But when I look back, it makes sense that God called me to her because he knew that she was struggling with the things that she did and I had no idea. And he knew that she was going to impact the kingdom in big ways and I had no idea. And he also knew that she was going to pass away a few short years later and I didn't know that either. So. Ultimately, I was thankful that I listened to God because He knew all those things that I didn't. And so when I think of her being the one in front of me, I think of, man, I need to listen to God when He calls me to someone because He knows, He sees such a bigger picture than what I see. When I look back, I see like God was the one who worked and, and really I had the easy part of just inviting her. So it wasn't hard, I think before, I was really intimidated by the idea of it, and I didn't really feel like I was worthy to ask her because we were rivals, and I felt like I wasn't worthy of asking her because I didn't feel like I had, um, I didn't feel like I had my life altogether, so I didn't feel like I was worthy of the one to go and ask and invite her to church, but then I did, and then I saw how God used that moment and used me to work in her life, and 
her story quickly became my story. And seeing how God worked through both of us was just really cool. I want people to understand the importance of listening to God when he's calling you to someone because ultimately you don't know why he's calling you to that person. So to just step outside your comfort zone and go invite that person and then you can watch how God works. So that's why we're doing it. And, um, you know, when God chooses to work, he chooses to work through people. That's how he works. And um, if we wait till conditions are perfect, if we wait till our life is all together, um, then we're going to be waiting a while uh, before God can use us. And so um, when ordinary people trust God and share his good news. God does extraordinary things. That's what we see. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to see an amazing passage of scripture. I've been, I've been in this thing for about three weeks and I've been dying to share it with you. It's a great passage of scripture. We're going to read verses 13 through 34 and I'm going to invite you if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word today. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we, were, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them in the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them and threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, 
so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But, but Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. This is the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. Is that not a great passage of scripture or what? Absolutely love that. What, what he's doing here, very simply, is Luke is showing us what happens when ordinary people share the gospel. That's what he's showing us. What he does is he gives us three different stories, three different conversations, three different people who believe the one same gospel and it changes their life. Three different someones. You have a someone here who's open to the gospel. You have a someone here who's held captive by the world. And then you have another someone who is under tension from life. And I think the question is, why does Luke put these stories, you know, you know, right in this chapter together, back, you know, back to back to back? Why does he do that? Well, I think there's a lot here. And so I want us to look at these three different someones. And the first someone I want us to look at is Lydia, someone who is open to the gospel. Look with me at verse 13. Let's kind of walk through this and just get, get our bearings of what's happening here. So Luke is writing this. Luke is actually with them. And so he says to them, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. Now, their normal MO was they would start in a synagogue. They would go to a city and they would find the Jewish synagogue. And then they would start there in their evangelism efforts. So there's no synagogue in, in Philippi. So, but they, they did hear the news that there were a group of ladies that were Jewish and they would meet in this particular place to pray. And so Paul and his gang said, hey, let's go there. We'll at least start in, in that place. So they're there at this place of prayer and they sit down and they begin to speak to this group of women and they begin to share the gospel. And so in verse 14, it tells us one person who was very open to the gospel. And it's verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, Lydia, we don't know a lot about her, but that, there's a lot in that verse that describes who she is. Lydia, first and foremost, is a, is a businesswoman. She is uh, a seller of purple goods. She's probably very wealthy. She is professional. She is, you know, she's on the higher rung of the socioeconomic ladder for sure. So she's a mover and shaker in the Philippi Chamber of Commerce. And uh, she's a professional. And, and Luke also tells us she's a worshiper of God, but she's not a Christian. So she, what we know is she's from Thyatira, which is in Asia Minor. So she's not, she's, she's an immigrant to this city. And, you know, she's a businesswoman and she's a worshiper of God. She's not Jewish, but she's practicing Judaism. And she's there with these women and they're praying, but she doesn't know 
she doesn't know Jesus. Now notice how Luke describes this. Verse 14 again. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now who did the opening? The Lord did the opening. The Lord, through the Holy Spirit, is working inside of her heart to cause her to pay attention to what Paul was saying. Interestingly, that word for pay attention in Greek is really a word very similar to addicted. The Lord was causing her to be addicted to what Paul was saying, to his message. Now, this is This is very important for us because I think what Luke is trying to help us see is that God is the one that initiates salvation. God is the one that initiates it. It's not Paul's preaching that makes her open. It's the Holy Spirit that's making her open. In fact, I love how, you know, John Stott puts this in his commentary on the book of Acts. He says, although the message was Paul Paul's, the saving initiative was God's. Paul's preaching was not effective in and of itself. The Lord worked through it. Now, this is huge for us as we think about our family members and our friends and our fellow students and coworkers who don't know Christ. It was not Paul that made her open to the gospel. It was the Holy Spirit. And that means we need to be praying for the Spirit's work in the lives of the people that we're sharing and inviting. We need to be lifting them up before God, asking God to make their hearts open to the message of the gospel. It, it was not Paul working, you know, working to make her heart open. It was God working through Paul. And it's not going to be us that makes you know, our friends and family members open to the gospel. It's going to be God working through us that does that. Does that make sense? And so that's what Luke wants, to, wants us to see. He wants us to see it was God that opened her heart. Now, Basically, what that means is we're just the instrument, but God is the worker. So the pressure to save somebody, that's not on us. That's on God. We're just an instrument in his hands. He is the worker. All right, now notice verse 15. I want you to see the gospel going viral in this family. Verse 15, after she was baptized, so God not only opened her heart, but he sealed the deal. She's baptized and her whole household as well. So presumably Paul, you know, and Silas and and Luke, they come to the house. They share the gospel of the entire house over several different conversations. So it takes some time for people to get it. But but God is working. And so their entire household is baptized. Isn't that amazing? Now, we don't know anything about Lydia's husband. We don't know, you know, she may not be married. She may be a widow. She She may have kids. She may not have kids. But she's got family in the house and all of them. All of them are baptized and come to Christ. What an amazing story this is. Now, one more thing on this. Um, and let me just, just kind of highlight for you. It says this, that, that she urged them, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, in other words, if, if you see that I'm authentic, uh, then come to my house and stay, she says. And then Luke says she prevailed upon us. So she won that argument there. Now, what I love about this is that it really illustrates an important principle that when God opens someone's heart, he opens their house as well. What she's doing is offering hospitality, kingdom hospitality. Do you know a great way to reach your neighbors for Christ is to open up your home and have them over for dinner? It's a great way to do it. Building a relationship with them, 
building rapport, building a conversation. I think what she's doing is she's saying, I, God has blessed me financially with a nice big house. Why don't we let the, the church in Philippi that's just now forming come and meet here as the center of what God is doing? She wants to use her financial means, her material means to build the kingdom of God. That's how you know someone has come to Christ. What an amazing story. So Lydia is open to the gospel. But, but there's another person in this story that Luke puts right in here, and it's a slave girl. And she is really someone who's held captive by the world. She's being held captive by Satan himself. Look at verse 16. Let me show you, let me show you what's going on here. This is just fascinating. As we were going to the place of prayer. So they go back to the place. It's a different day. All right. They're going back to that place of prayer, presumably to pray, okay, and to evangelize. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of, a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Now, clearly she's demon possessed. She has a demon living inside of her, empowering her to do this fortune telling thing. All right. So, so she's a slave girl. Um, she's the opposite of Lydia. We don't even know her name. She's probably 14 years old. Um, she, she has no name, no family to call her own. She has nothing. All she can do is, you know, be a fortune teller. And, um, and she does that through the power of darkness, you know, working in her life. And that's, that's exactly what's happening here. Now, notice what she says to the group and how she responds to Paul. She says this, these are men. She yells this out in this area. There are a lot of people there or whatever. And so these men, she says, these men are servants of the Most High God and they proclaim the way of salvation. Now, my first question when I saw that is why in the world is someone demon-possessed evangelizing the crowd like that? You know what I'm saying? Like she's, she's kind of pointing the way to salvation. And the, it's interesting because the Bible commentators kind of wrestled with this as well. And I think the general consensus is she's really mocking them. She's mocking them. We don't get the tone in which she's doing this because it's written down. But she's, she's antagonistic towards what they're doing and she's mocking them. And so she's doing this repeatedly and, and consistently. And I think it just shows, it highlights a principle. And I think the principle is this. I think you and I both know, I think all of us know people that are held captive. They're held captive by the world. They're in some kind of addiction, uh, some kind of captivity to life circumstances, to hurt, to broken, brokenness, to bitterness. Um, just, you know, just held captive by it. And they're not necessarily demon-possessed, but they're pinned down. And what's, what I've noticed about people that are like that is they're oftentimes very antagonistic to the faith. But at the same time, paradoxically, they're also attracted to the faith. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. I think she's, she's antagonistic, she's mocking them, but I think at the same time, she's also attracted to, to these guys and attracted to their message. She's obviously interested in it because she kept doing it for several days. And so you need to understand that as you and I bump into people that are held captive, you know, in different ways, in different circumstances, they're, they're going to probably be antagonistic and attractive to the, to the message. Now, 
Notice, notice what Paul does. Verse 18, he, Luke tells us this. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed. Now, you guys, I love that because that's real. You guys, if, you know how I know the Bible is true? Because of stuff like that. That's how I know the Bible is true. Because if Luke's, Luke's writing this, and if he's engaged in image management, if he's concerned about how they all look, he's not going to put that in there. He's just being real. This girl was getting on their last nerve. That's what, that's what she was doing. And, and so he's honest about it. He doesn't say, well, Paul moved with great compassion and put his arm around her and just kind of prayed with her. And blood. No, he doesn't say that. No, he was greatly annoyed. Here's the principle, church. It's, it's really simple. If you and I are going to love people who are far from God, if you and I are going to live on mission, we got to understand that God's going to put annoying people across our path. Can I get an amen to that? And we need to love them anyway. Because our natural inclination is, I'm just going to avoid them. I'm going to stay as far away from them. And I think maybe that's what Paul is doing. We need to leave her alone and get on with the real stuff. You know what I'm saying? But, but God is going to bring across your path and my path annoying people. And we don't need to avoid them because you know why? Before we came to Christ, there was a time when you and I were annoying as well. And God brought us in. I think the second part of this, and this is the big one here, I think the second application is this. You and I both know people that are held captive by the world, and it's so easy for you and I to just write them off and say, there's no way they would ever give their life to Jesus because they're just too far gone. You ever looked at somebody and thought that? Maybe that's what Paul and Silas and Luke are doing. Like, we just need to ignore her because there's no way. With God, there is a way. And we can't be just picking and choosing. We just got to be instruments in the, man, in, the, in the hands of the master. That's what we need to be. Let him work it. But we need to be the vessel. And so Paul finally, after a few days, looks at her and commands the spirit to come out of her in the name of Jesus. And it came out the very moment that he told it to. Isn't that amazing? I think Luke includes this because he wants us to see that the gospel has power to save even those that are held captive by the world and captive by the devil himself. That's what I think. But there's a third person, a third someone, if you will. And this someone is someone who's under tension from life. All right, look at, look at verse 19. It gets even more interesting. Um, Luke writes this, all right? But when her owners saw that the hope of gain was gone, so they, they, they exercised the spirit out of her so she can't do fortune telling anymore. So that hits her, her owners in the bottom line right there because they can't make money off of her anymore. So they get ticked off at Paul and Silas. They drag them in front of the magistrates and then, I mean, it gets chaotic from there. So they seize Paul and Silas, drag them in front of the, into the marketplace before the rulers. And, and we'll skip down to verse 22. The crowd joined them in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off of them. So this is going really well. 
And then they gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep, to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Wait a minute, I thought if I followed Jesus, I'm supposed to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. What's going on here? Church, listen, when you and I share the gospel, there's going to be opposition to it, to us. But we need not let that cause us to be afraid. There's going to be opposition. That's just part of the deal. But it's, in America, it's not even that big of a deal compared to what other people face in other countries. And so, so this jailer, they beat them. Luke emphasizes they got beaten several times, many times, he says. And he puts them in these stocks, all right? So you and I, when we hear the word stock, we think Jamestown Colony, you know, the pilgrims, hang, you know, hanging in this wood thing, you know. No, these were, these were chains in a cave, basically. Chains in the ground to the wall. Or chains in the ceiling holding them upside down. This is painful. They're, they're, they're bloodied, they're beaten, they're bruised, and they're hanging inside this jail cell in the inner prison, in the darkest, you know, smelliest place, all right? That's where they are, and that's what they get for being obedient to the gospel. Praise be to God, right? Isn't that fun? Don't you want to just sign up for that, all right? Well, notice verse 25, all right? Let me just show you this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. All right, they're hanging upside down. They're bleeding. They've got open wounds. It doesn't smell really nice in there. Just imagine that. And they're singing and, and praying to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. No wonder they were listening to them. Because, because if instead of complaining to each other, they are praising God. Instead of being bitter about their circumstances and being bitter about the people that did this, they are blessing God. And I think what's happening here, what Luke is trying to show us, is that God uses our suffering to bring other people into the kingdom. Because every prisoner in that, pray, that place was listening to everything that they prayed and every word that they sang. And so, and so I just wonder how God might want to use your suffering that you're going through right now. I wonder how he might want to use the trials and the tribulations in your life. Because see, something happens, church, when, when we anchor ourselves not in our circumstances, when we anchor our joy and our happiness not in circumstances, but in the person and the work of Christ, then the world notices our faith and our joy regardless of the circumstances we're going through. And they, they, they're listening. They want to know, where did you get that? What is that? Because I'd like to have that too. And so you see that God redeems our suffering for the salvation of other people. Now, look at verse, look at verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and every bond, everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke, he saw the prison doors were open, 
and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He was supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, why is he about to kill himself? Because really, really as a, you know, the warden of this prison, if anybody escapes, it's on him. So if somebody gets out, he's going down. And he knows that. That's the only rule he's got to operate by. Now, who is this jailer? We don't know a lot about the jailer, but we can ascertain a few things about, you know, this jailer. We know that uh, back in, you know, in the Roman days, uh, jailers were former soldiers. They were decorated war heroes. They were, uh, jailers were, for the most part, they were older. They had passed their kind of physical prime and they were decorated war heroes, basically. And the way that they were rewarded was they were given charge over local area prisons. And so this would be a great way to you know, support your family and do that kind of thing. And so that's what I, that's what I think is, is really happening here with this Philippian jailer. But he understands this earthquake has come. They're, these guys are going to escape and, you know, he's going to kill himself. But look at what, look at verse 29 and you see um, verse 28. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Now, here's the scene. You've got the, you got the, you know, Paul and you know, Silas together, and on their left is freedom. All they got to do is take off and run. And on their right is the Philippian jailer, the guy that beat them, the guy that put them in stocks, the guy that's been really cruel to them. And so Paul intervenes and says, don't do that with that sword. You, you don't, you're, not ready, you're not ready for that. Don't do that. We're all here. We're not going anywhere because we're here for you. We've not escaped. We know what this means. And we care about you. Paul's extending grace to someone who's hurt him significantly. All right. And so the jailer called for lights, verse 29, and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before them, brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, he's in a whole different frame of mind. Would you agree? I mean, he's now all of a sudden open to the gospel. He's like, man, I'm wide open. Whatever you got, share it with me because this, this doesn't look good. You know what's fascinating? The thing that I want you to see is you, as you interact with family members and friends who are maybe far from God, you know, people move in and out of openness to the gospel. I mean, one minute they're open to it and, the ne- you know, the next day, the next week, they're totally closed. They're not interested. And God uses two things, generally speaking, to make people open to the gospel. He usually will, he will use times of transition and he will use times of tension. So let's look at times of transition. All right, um, a young couple has a new baby. Man, within weeks, they're walking through the doors of the church because they're just, they're open. You know what I mean? Like, Lord, please help us here, you know? Uh, Newly married, a new job, a new move to a new community. All of those things are transitional things, and God uses those circumstances to get people thinking about him. But he also uses times of tension. And tension can be, you know, a divorce, a death in the family, you know, job stress, a job change, you know, um, any kind of significant, any kind of significant uh, failure. A health issue can be a time of tension that God uses. I remember when I was in seminary, you know, um, 
my dad was having open heart surgery at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And so, so obviously I drove down to, to be with him and uh, my family during this, this very serious surgery. And, and so, you know, I knew my dad was anxious like any one of us would be anxious before this. They were going to take him at 6 a.m. the next morning. So I said to my dad, I said, Dad, you know, I'd love to just spend the night with you in the room. And, and that way, you know, uh, we can just kind of be together and hopefully, you know, take your mind off things. And he said, well, man, that would be great. He said, that would be awesome. So it was like 1 a.m. in the morning and, and we just kind of stayed up talking all night because you don't really sleep before those things. And, and so, and I just, at, a, at an opportune time, I just said, dad, do you have peace with God? You know, do you know that if this thing doesn't go well, then you're going to be with Jesus? Do you know that? And he said, Scott, I, I don't have peace. I'm not right with God. And I said, Dad, would you like to be? And he said, yes. So I just briefly shared, you know, the gospel message with him. And I said, Dad, if you, you know, would you want, would you want to become a Christian right now and to trust Jesus with your, with your salvation, with your life? And he said, yes. And I said, well, just pray after me. And I was able, I had the privilege of leading, you know, leading my dad to Christ and and praise God, he came through the surgery well. But I, I really believe that God used the pressure of that time to get him thinking about, you know, his eternity. And I think that's exactly what is, what is happening to this Philippian jailer. You know, some of us are stubborn. And we're just, we're just going to stiff arm God and stiff arm God and stiff arm God. And God, you know, in his grace and his love, he pursues us. And sometimes he's got to bring us to the lowest place before we'll start looking up. To the cross. Does that make sense? So what you and I need to be doing is sensitive to those things in the lives of the people around us that we, that we love, that we care for, and, and, um, and that we're sharing the gospel with. Look at verse 31. I love how this ends. And they said, you know, Paul tells them, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. The gospel is so simple. It's so simple. Just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, and um, you and your household. And so they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and all who were in his house. So the conversation continued long after this. They went back to the house. And he took them the same hour of the night. And he washed their wounds. The wounds that he caused. He washed them. Notice this. And he was baptized at once. He and his family. Probably in the very same fountain. Probably in the very same well. That he washed their wounds in. He's baptized. That's God working. That's how you know this is real. This is authentic in his life. And then he brought them up into his house and uh, set food before them. When God opens your heart, he opens your house, right? See it again. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he believed in God. I love the power of a dad coming to Christ. And I think that's what happens. I mean, when a dad says, I'm, you know, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I mean, usually the family follows right in between, right in, right in behind them. Isn't that awesome? What, a, what an amazing story. I mean, think about this. Lydia, someone open to the gospel. You've got, you've got the slave girl, someone ill captive. And then you've got the jailer, the soldier, who's under tension, and all three of them come to Christ. Why, why does he put this in here? I think there's at least three reasons. I think one reason could be that God, God wants us to see, Luke wants us to see, that evangelism is a process. It's not a one and done thing. It's a process. 
And I think long before we invite someone, long before we share the gospel with someone, God is already working in their heart long before we get there. He's already working. He's already drawing people to himself. And I think he was doing that with Lydia. She had been going to, you know, she was hanging around these Jewish women for a long time. She was asking questions. She was learning how to pray. She did it for years probably. And finally, God brought her to a place of openness to the gospel. We don't know the situation with the slave girl, but there was something about the message of Paul and Silas and those guys that she kept persisting. She kept antagonizing them because there was something in her drawn to the message. And then, then, you know, just the whole concept of, you know, the, this jailer putting these guys in prison, beating them, putting them in the stocks, and they're praising God with joy, joyful hymns and joyful songs, got him thinking. And then when his job fell apart through an earthquake, he's like, there's no hope for me, but maybe there is. And that hope was through a messenger. Evangelism is a process. It takes a long time. But we've got to be persistent. I love how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. He says, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? These were preachers, obviously. They're servants through whom you believed, as the, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. What that tells me is there's a process of people coming to Christ. Paul planted the seed. They didn't accept Christ then. Paulus came behind and watered that seed. They didn't, maybe they didn't accept Christ then, but God over time made it grow. So there are going to be seeds that you're planting. There are going to be seeds that you're watering, but God's going to make it grow. We just have to be usable. And that leads us to the second, second truth of this, and that is we're called to participate in the process. I mean, it's a mysterious thing. But God opens Lydia's heart through Paul's preaching. God doesn't, Paul doesn't do it, but God uses Paul to do it. It's the same way with you and me. God is working in hearts, but the only way he works is through his people. God is doing the opening, we're doing the talking. Lydia comes to Christ, a slave girl comes to Christ, a Philippian jailer comes to Christ. Why? Because these guys were living on mission. They saw themselves as carriers of the gospel. And here's the last one. And this is the most beautiful one. But what I love about this story is this. This, this is it. Three very different people. All embracing one gospel message. Can you guys just imagine a more diverse group of people getting saved and forming the core of this Philippian church. Lydia is a businesswoman. She's an immigrant from Asia Minor. The slave girl doesn't even know her name. She has nothing. She's probably Greek. The former soldier, he's probably middle class, and he's probably Roman. These are the core of this new church starting in Philippi. Vastly different people Different needs. Lydia had an intellectual need. How does Christ connect to the Old Testament? Paul told her. The slave girl had a different need. She had a physical need and, and an emotional need and a spiritual need, right? Paul and those guys met that need through the gospel. 
Not only that, but this Philippian jailer, he probably had a moral need. This guy wasn't, he was pretty mean, you know what I'm saying? And so he's roaming. I mean, these guys are totally different. And what is the one thing that unites them together as a new family? What is it? The grace of God. And before you know it, these three will be praying together. They will be sharing together. They will be growing together. They will be worshiping together and building the church in Philippi. Not unlike what's happening here pretty amazing. In other words, you see the universal appeal of the gospel. That the gospel has the power to transform anyone's life. It doesn't matter what their race is. It doesn't matter what their W-2 statement says. It doesn't matter what their education level is. It doesn't matter what their status. We're all one in Christ. Praise God, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so you have three very different people, but one great God. Three different stories, but one great Savior. That's what we have. One great Savior. Doesn't the world need to hear that from us? I think so. Let's pray. I want you to just uh, take a minute and think about your one. And I want you to pray that God will open their heart. Just like he opened Lydia's. I want you to pray that God will give you opportunities for a conversation. And I want you to pray for boldness to offer that invitation. We all get nervous, me included, me especially. That's why we need boldness. So pray, pray that God will give you the boldness. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would, you would work in this church, that you would work through us. That as average, norm, normal, ordinary Christians go and share the gospel, God, I just pray that it would go viral through us. We want to be faithful. We know you do the work. We want to be instruments. You're the one that opens hearts. Would you do that among us? Would you do it on August 5th? Would you do it before August 5th? Would you do it after? Lord, our prayer is that this would be a place where lives are changed and God is working. And we thank you and praise you and all of God's people said, amen.